0: Your eyes on the times, you walk ready to speak up. But with so many problems, you're exhausted trying to keep up. This is the Church Politics Podcast where you can get political commentary from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be conservative or progressive, we're trying to be Christian in the public square. And I'm black as heaven, I'm made in God's image. Nobody can change my settings. Hey man, cut off my knees and put an end to my search. It's easy to sell your soul when you don't know what it's worth. With you no good, Ann Camp, you're listening to the Ann Campaigns Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney, a.k.a. Bishop Cooper's grandson. And the Windy City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, my play cousin, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Now, if you're watching this on YouTube, which YouTube is an option, and I'll get into that in a second. Then you already know that my man, uh, the right Reverend Christopher Butler, is not here today. He'll be back. Don't worry. Uh, the bad news is that you got to deal with me and my monologues on this episode. But I think I have a few things to say. I think I can hold it down without my man here, although I know we all enjoy Chris's commentary and the back and forth that we have. But I'm going to ask you. For little grace. I'm going to ask you to to bear with me uh, through this episode as I I Give you some of my thoughts. Now, as always, as I give you my thoughts, I'll try to uh, put the thoughts of others or the other side of the argument in there when necessary. But you with me today, and so I hope you enjoy this monologue. Chris will be back, and maybe that'll help you get through this this episode. Knowing Chris will be back soon uh, to counter me and correct me when I'm uh, wrong. So, shout out to Chris and his family, man. We know you'll be back. Glad you're taking a little bit of a break, uh, and we will be here. When you get back, man, this this last weekend uh, was amazing for me Uh, and and primarily for two reasons. All right. Uh, The first reason that I really enjoyed myself this weekend was because I was a part of the Jude three projects, courageous conversations. Now, if you don't know about Lisa Fields and I like to call her evangelist, Lisa Fields and the Jude three project. You are sleeping. You're not woke. You're not nothing else as a Christian. If you don't know about Lisa Fields and the Jude three project, the Jude three project is about urban apologetics. It's helping Christians understand what we believe and why, because if a lot of us have a true belief in God. But I think as we get past a kind of naive belief, we need to have the sort of belief that can be defended. And if you're anything like me, some of us went to college and went other places and found that we had a strong belief, but we really couldn't explain it. We hadn't dug into the scriptures the way that uh, we should have. And so Lisa and other apologists that she brings in help Christians understand why, because one of the major things that she talks about is God has answers for our questions. The whole thing about don't question God, that ain't (laughs) that ain't biblical. God can answer your questions. The answer to your questions are in the Bible. So look there. And if you have not checked out Jude 3 Project, you need to do that seriously, though, because on some very tough questions, whether it's suffering, whether it's the divinity of Jesus, whether it's things like the Trinity. The Jude 3 Project has done an excellent job of providing us with the best scholars to give us the best answers, and I, I greatly appreciate it. So to be a part of Courageous Conversations this time was great. And really what Courageous Conversations is, is the Jude 3 Project once a year pulls together uh, different apologists and faith leaders to talk about certain subjects. And I was invited to be on a panel. I'll talk about that panel a little, a little bit later. But the other thing that's, and so you need, number one, you need to look up Courageous Conversations, Jude 3 Project, and you also need to be there next year. Because it's, it's an extraordinary experience, I got to see a whole bunch of friends. For me, it's almost like a family reunion. You know, I get to see guys like Vince Bantu, uh, uh Stephen Harris, uh, so many, so many folks, Akimani uh, Iwan, um, so many folks who you know I don't get to see on a regular basis. The Edmond Edmondsons, so many people I don't get to see on a regular basis, but it's always good to see thoughtful Christians who are trying to do their best for the kingdom and really trying to to feed people the right information uh, and, and kind of bring about a type of orthodoxy and orthopraxy. The beauty of the uh, Courageous Conversations is she gives both sides. So she'll bring some more orthodox folks, leaders like myself. She'll also bring some more folks from the progressive side to have really a conversation and and, and, um, and go back and forth. And, and I think it's been really fruitful for me. So that's the first reason that I had a good weekend was uh, Courageous Conversations from the Jude 3 Project. But also. College football. College football was in full swing, Uh, and I sat there with my sons after their games and just enjoyed watching football, enjoyed getting back to this pastime that so many of us really do, really do enjoy. And so it, it is all the way live. Uh, We have some great games coming up, I know, this week again. So I hope everybody Well, not. I know everybody ain't into it. But for those of you that are uh, that are into college football, I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, Just really a a, a, a pastime that we can enjoy if we don't make too much of it. If you have not heard of my of of my um, sports uh, theorem in regard to sports, my sports tribalism theorem in regard to football and other sports, you need to check that out on another episode as well. Well, I want to give a shout out, as usual, to all of our patrons and supporters uh, for supporting us in what we do and how we do it. Uh, We truly appreciate you, especially you guys that are actually giving uh, to, to us on Patreon. This content takes time to create. This content takes money to create. This movement takes money to create. So if you want to give to the Church Politics Podcast or to the AND Campaign in general, Church Politics Podcast, you can give at Patreon dot com slash church politics if you give to us monthly you will get premium episodes so there's stuff that we don't say on our regular episodes that we talk about in our premium episodes if you want to check that out all you have to do is become a patron on patreon.com or if you just want to give to the movement in general you can always give through our website at ancampaign.org. we greatly appreciate it don't just stand on the sidelines Let people know that you are a part of a movement that's trying to change the way that Christians do politics and in turn bring about flourishing uh, for the land in general. All right. If you are watching this on YouTube, which I hope more of you watching on YouTube, we just started putting on YouTube for real. Make sure that you like and subscribe. All that stuff helps gets us in the algorithm so more and more people can hear about what we're doing but we you know we got to get into this i think i have a pretty good episode even though i'm without my partner in crime or partner in the kingdom might be more a better way of saying it even though i'm without chris butler i think i still have some things to say that you're going to enjoy so grab your bible get your mind right and prepare to think not like a republican not like a democrat but to think like a christian i'll be right back that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. All right, folks, if you don't mind, I want to start uh, this segment off with scripture as we usually do. And today's scripture comes from Acts 16, verses 29 through 31. Acts 16, verses 29 through 31. And it reads, the jailer called for lights, rushed in and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, sirs, what must I do? To be saved, they replied, Believe. Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. What must I do to be saved? And they respond, Believe. I want to ask us just to remember that that is the basis of salvation, a true belief. It's not any type of imposition from the church. It's not about forcing people to do anything. It really is about telling people about salvation and letting them know that all they have to bring to the table is belief, faith. Let Jesus take care of the rest. Important to note, and I think that is a concept. We can bring that understanding into the public square with us in general in the culture with us, in the politics with us. Trying to get people to believe. Of course, all of that connects with the Great Commission and how we're supposed to go out and bring people to the faith, lift up God so that they may believe. Now, as I talked about earlier, I was uh, a panelist at Jude 3 at Jude Three Project's Courageous Conversation, Courageous Conversations. And I was on a panel about the role our faith should play In our politics with some other thoughtful leaders, Uh, Harvard and Yale scholar uh, Stephen Harris was the moderator. And I have to say he did an excellent job. And one of the questions that he asked, one of the subjects that came up was the question of legislating morality. Should Christians or anyone, for that matter, legislate morality? Uh, I think the first panelist to to address that issue said that Christians should never seek to legislate morality, that us putting our values on others is wrong. And I think he went so far as to say that us putting our values on others is actually, I want to say he said an act of violence or something to that effect, that legislating morality is an act of violence. My response to this question or to this topic was that Christians shouldn't do what we've sometimes done in the past and say that because the Bible says this, it should be the law. That's not how this should work. And the reason that that's not how this should work is that we live in a pluralistic society, meaning we live in a society where people have a lot of different beliefs. And if we want them to respect our beliefs and not us treat us a certain way because of our beliefs, then we also need to respect their beliefs. Now, I want to be very clear when I say respect somebody's beliefs, that does not mean agree with them. That does not mean that their beliefs automatically become the law either. It just means that we understand that they have a right to believe what they believe and we will defend that right. That's really what what religious freedom and you know religious liberty is all about people with different beliefs being respected within that. And so what I mean when I say that is that my Muslim and Hindu neighbor have just as as much of a right to speak into what they think this country should be and how, you know, and what laws should control this country as the Christian nationalist does. They have just as much of a right to put their vision out there and try to persuade others and... If what they're saying, if their argument is better, <laughs> then it should win the day. If they persuade more people, then it should win the day. Just because I'm a Christian doesn't think doesn't mean that I think that all Christian ideas should automatically win the day if they're not articulated properly and if they're not uh, uh, articulated in a way that persuades others. In this constitutional republic, we need to persuade others into seeing things our way if something's gonna become the law, right? And in part, this is what the separation between church and state is all about. This is why we have the Establishment Clause and the Free Exercise Clause in the First Amendment and why they are important, right? The Establishment Clause was the founders reacting to the Church of England and saying, look, we don't want a church that dictates everything for us. That we can't opt out of. Therefore, they said in the Constitution, you should not be able to establish a church. The government cannot establish. The state cannot establish a church. So that says what the state can't do. Right. Can't establish. Then you have the free exercise clause, which shows what the state can't stop others from doing. You cannot stop others from this free exercise of their religion. That is important. Even as somebody who deeply believes in the Bible, that deeply believes in the faith, it's important to give people a choice and to let them exercise in the way that they choose. All right. Forcing our beliefs on others without pluralism and without going through the democratic process is obviously undemocratic, but it's also not biblically supported. That's not how our faith works. You cannot force somebody to be a Christian. You cannot you you should not jail them as as was done to uh, Paul and Silas and then come and try to force them to believe what you believe. That's not how this operates, because if we do it to others, they can do it to us. And it's just not right. What Christians need to be able to do is come into the public square and articulate why some of our tenants Are things that can benefit everyone and therefore have a practical value for everyone in a way that convinces them that this is good this is something that we should want whether we're christians or not and even within that i don't think that we take all of the christian tenets and just uh uh, push them to be law either right we have to decide which ones actually fit within a pluralistic society that said in response to the other panelists i did have to say that We also can't completely avoid legislating morality. I I don't think I I don't think. That can be completely pushed aside and we completely say, hey, we're not going to legislate anything that's moral, that deals with morality, because if you think about it. Laws against murder. Laws against statutory rape. Are all conceived based on moral judgments are based on value judgments right they don't just come out of nowhere these are things that we think should be enforced in society because they are good based on some type of again moral judgment because the anarchist might say that those values or those morals are being imposed on them so the aren't anarchists would say you can't put any laws on me because any laws that you put on me is you imposing something that i don't necessarily believe on me and they would have a point but the truth is you can't have a functioning society let alone a flourishing society without a set of moral values that are agreed on by that society you wouldn't be able to have any laws at all the 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 how could we function if we didn't Uh, Have laws that said, hey, you shouldn't just steal from someone. If you steal from them, you have to give it back or you have to repay them or you have to go to jail. How does a society function in that way? Now, I know in the uh, Pacific Northwest, uh, they're trying to to go at society without some of those rules. And we see that it's failing miserably. But understand that every law, not just the laws that I named, but every law comes from a set of values. And secular values are not neutral just because they're not religious. You would not have any laws if they didn't come from some kind of system of belief that this makes society better to restrain people in this or that way. Just so we can get on, just so we can uh, stay out of each other's way and flourish. All right. So it's very hard to say that you can't legislate morality at all. It's impossible. You have to legislate morality to some extent, but there are limits. And that's what I was getting at earlier. There are limits for how much that should be legislated. Okay. The main. So, for instance, we don't just say that because the Bible says thou shall not kill and thou shall not steal. We shouldn't have laws against murder and we shouldn't have laws against theft. No, it's about how it goes through the process. So the question is it isn't whether or not we should uh, legislate morality. The question is, has what we're trying to legislate gone through the democratic process? Has it properly gone through the public discourse? Has it properly gone through the legislative process? It doesn't matter whether it's a Hindu idea, a Muslim idea. No, it shouldn't be automatically enforced on people, but if it goes through the democratic process, then and it and it's not unconstitutional right then that's something that we can consider regardless of whose values uh, uh it comes from right so we we can't avoid legislating morality now usually where this issue comes up most is when it comes to the sexuality conversation and when it comes to the abortion conversation and many people especially on the left would say And even libertarians. So that's not the left. You know, uh, some libertarians are kind of on the right in some aspects, but many of them would say, hey, don't legislate morality when it comes to sexuality. And I would ask them, is that really possible? Because I think most of us would agree that there are some topics, some subjects, some content that is inappropriate for elementary school kids. I think we all can say at some point there's some things that they're not mature enough to handle. So are we wrong by making a judgment to say, hey, on this particular issue, our policy is this should not be in schools. Is that a bad policy to have? Because it is in some way legislating or, you know, at least through policy morality. It's that's a moral standard. That you're placing on people in a pluralistic society, I think that's reasonable. The question is where sh- should that line be drawn and who should draw that line. But the question isn't should there should there. The, but we shouldn't say that that line should never be drawn because it's moral. That wasn't the, that wasn't even the idea behind the separation between church and state. And I want to mention that the separation between church and state is not actually in the Constitution. Those words aren't there. They're basically implied. From the establishment clause and from the free exercise clause, which I talked about before. In our society, even when it comes to sexuality, there will be some moral lines drawn. Now, where that moral line shouldn't be drawn is telling adults what other adults they they can sleep with and all this other stuff. Right. We may not agree with all of it, but that's not something that we intrude upon. We let adults make that decision within their free will. Now, when we talk about abortion and we bring abortion into this conversation. um, Some people would say that when you push an abortion law, you're pushing the Bible's values on somebody who doesn't believe the Bible. Because we you know, some people say the Bible says that. uh, Unborn life is life and you shouldn't take that life. And I think in Jeremiah and in other places, that's clear. And some people say, well, you can't put put that on other people. But let me say this. I don't think it's legislating morality in a purely Christian way or an imposition of Christian values to say that the unborn are living. In fact, uh, secular or atheist scholars like Christopher Hitchens have made the case that based on science, that based on science, it's hard to say that the that an unborn baby isn't alive, that you're not dealing with another life. Now, we know that the you know that the, the left's narrative on this is that. Is a my body, my choice narrative, let the woman control her body. And I think if if that if if it were that simple, I think most of us, if not all of us would agree with that, but I don't think it's that simple. I think a lot of people are saying, well, yeah, that 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 sounds okay if we completely eliminate the baby from the conversation and act like that body doesn't exist at all. And for those of us who are aren't willing to act like that baby doesn't exist at all, then we have to admit that this conversation is a little more complicated. But the point that I'm trying to make right now is that you don't have to make that from a religious point of view. If we are con- to consider whether we're religious or non-religious, the unborn who's heart is beating who can feel pain and so on as a life then it's not as easy as the narrative says and at that point we're protecting a life we're not just telling you what you can do with your life we're telling you what you can do in regard to another life and most of the morals that are uh enforced through the law through legislation are what you can do to others what you can directly do to others not allowing you to directly harm others, and I think what people are saying is, from conception or whatever point you you want to point out, you are impacting another life, not just one life. Okay, so I believe it's wrong to say that um, abortion, you know, pro life, the pro life stance is clearly just putting Christian values on other people. The argument's been made from atheists; it's been made from people outside of our religion. We need to have a a more complicated conversation and let it be a hard conversation, because, as you know, I think in many cases, the right has gotten this wrong, too, and been very cold hearted and how it addressed women in very tough situations. Most women, uh, uh, my understanding from the from the statistics is most women would want to have that child were they not in a tough financial situation. Finances and resources plays a huge role in that happening. And I think when the right doesn't realize that, and this is my problem with them as well, it tries to make a subject that is tough for people easier than it is. Even if you think the conclusion is clear, that doesn't mean leading up to the cl- conclusion is clear. All right. So I thought, again, you got to check out the Jude three conversation. We go a little bit deeper into it, but I just want to have a quick conversation, with y'all. just talk about for a little bit the idea of legislating morality. To say, no, we should never legislate morality, I think is unrealistic. It just doesn't it doesn't match what really goes on with society. But to be a Christian nationalist and say that we need to legislate Christian morality and that Christians should get some kind of privilege or uh, advantage in the public square is absolutely wrong as well. If you can't articulate your values into something that people who don't believe what you believe religiously understand and see value in, then you don't deserve to win the debate that's the way it goes so i believe that the christian nationalist is wrong and the person even somebody like vice president uh, kamala harris who suggests that abortion laws are unconstitutionally a religious imposition are wrong both those sides are wrong and what i'm asking you all to do is make let this be a little more complicated and think through it past the talking points i'll be right back in the church politics podcast And I am back on the Church Politics Podcast. This is Justin Gibney without my dear friend, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Um, you know, we, 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 we miss him, but the show must go on. And so I hope y'all are still listening. I hope y'all are still giving me the grace that I asked for at the beginning of uh, this episode. Some of you might have heard this term a little more often. Some of you had might have noticed that it's coming into the conversation, especially if you watch political shows and are paying attention to geopolitical issues. Uh, the conversation about bricks. And no, I'm not talking about the stone the builder refused. No, I'm not talking about a Gucci Mane or Jeezy song. I'm talking about bricks, and bricks stands for Brazil, Russia, India, China And South Africa. All right. It is a group of major economies that first came together around 2009 to discuss their own economic interests. And one of the things that came up within that conversation, as I understand it, is the need to challenge the economic and geopolitical dominance of the United States and its Western allies. Basically, to Challenge U.S. hegemony or U.S. global leadership, the way we use our power and influence in economics and politics and the military uh, to influence other countries. Good, bad or both. I guess, depending on who you ask. Now, BRICS meets annually to focus on economic cooperation and increasing multilateral trade. Um, they account for about 40 percent of the world's population. These countries do. And a fourth of the global economy. This is no small uh, 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 inconsequential group. Now, this group has some power and the moves they make, the decisions they make are going to matter to us and our economy here in the United States. Now, what they have in common is the pursuit, obviously, of economic growth. and wanting a level of independence from the United States and from the rest of the West. And what does that independence look like? When they say economic independence, where would they start? What would that mean? Well, one of the stated goals is de-dollarization. That's right, de-dollarization. Currently, the dollar is the world's reserve currency. And China and Russia especially are trying to change that. They want to take the dollar out of their transactions and in turn weaken the power of the United States monetary system and of U.S. sanctions that could come against them. Brazil has even suggested that BRICS uh, create a common currency. And, 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 you know, and further kind of cut the U.S. out of some of, of some of those transactions. Now. China it has been very clear about wanting bricks to be a counterweight to g7 to g7 and we've talked about g7 if you look it up on this podcast probably several times uh g7 is a international group that coordinates global economic policy and that group includes canada france germany italy japan the uk and obviously the united states so China is really gunning for this group because this group is in the way of of their dominance in a lot of ways, and China has its own economic issues, which you might get into in a second. But what you have to understand that even within BRICS, and I and they had a good uh, episode on this on breaking points, uh, and so any of the, y'all that watch that on YouTube or wherever can check that out there as well. But one of the things that they pointed out there was that not all the members of BRICS are as gun ho as China and Russia are. In fact, India and South uh, Africa, in general, aren't as eagerly as eager, I should say, aren't as eager to antagonize the West and the U.S. as as those two countries seem to be. They still have relationships and imports and all that stuff from both, and they're not trying to make this an us versus them necessary thing necessarily on all levels. Again, they do a good deal of business with the West. And smartly, don't wisely, don't want to be under China's finger either. Right. So it's like, OK, so we switch. We swap the U.S. out for China and Russia. I'm not sure that's great, although I, I I although we don't necessarily think that they should run the whole global economy or have so not run the whole c- economy, but have so much of a say and so much influence in the global economy. Right. So they're they're halfway in, halfway out to, to some extent. China and Russia seem to want them to jump all the way into the beef with the U S and we've all been through this in life. I I, I tend to say that geopolitics is a lot like life in general, uh, where you had, you know, somebody you're cool with them. They have beef with somebody else and they want you to be all in with them on their beef. And you're like, bro, I love you. Uh, I'll help you where I can. I, that ain't really my beef. I don't know them like that. Or I kind of know them and I don't feel the same way about it. You know, and they're like, Hey man, you got to get up off the fence, bro. You either, you either in or you out. And uh, in a way, that's kind of how China and Russia are are trying to handle it. But India has its own uh, leverage. And so they don't just have to go along with with everything that Russia and Ch- China are trying to do. So this group met late in August. And one of the things that was on the table was adding more countries to BRICS. Now. India didn't really want to add more countries. OK, so they pushed back against it, I think. uh Brazil might have said out of of that conversation or South, uh, I'm sorry, South Africa might have said out of that conversation, Um, but they wanted, but China especially wanted to add more countries to the coalition and they ended up winning that debate. So as of now, there are six additional countries that have been added to BRICS. That's Iran, that's Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Argentina, Egypt, and Ethiopia. Now, I want you to notice a couple things in particular about that list. If you look closely at that list Iran, Saudi Arabia, United Arab Emirates, Argentina, Egypt, and Ethiopia, that group controls a good amount of oil. Something to keep in mind. The other thing that you might have noticed from that list is that some of them receive some of the largest foreign aid distributions from the United States. So in a way somebody could articulate this as saying, Hey, you're going against the interest of the United States, but you get all these benefits from the United States. I'm not saying that's going to start something. I'm saying that could become somewhat of a conflict. And I'm sure that uh, folks over uh foreign, uh, our, our foreign um policy, have noticed, uh, you know, who who joined and what they received from from the United States. Okay, I want to get a little bit into so that's something to keep, you know, keep in mind as we talk about this. But I also want to get a a little bit into the implications of de-dollarization. Okay, and U.S. News had a pretty good article on it. It'll be in the the show notes. But I want to talk about what 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 would happen if if, uh, you know, the dollar is not Um, is not in the center of a lot of these transactions, okay? Now, according to U.S. News, the Federal Reserve estimates that between 1999 and between 2019, the dollar accounted for 96% of international trade transactions in the Americas, 74% in Asia, and 79% around the rest of the globe. That's a big deal. Globally, banks use dollars for approximately 60 percent of their non-domestic deposits and loans. Adding to this in the foreign exchange market today, the U.S. dollar is uh, on one side of almost 90 percent of all transactions. The dollar plays a major role in the global economy. Now. They go on to say that it's unlikely that even if we kind of go through this de-dollarization, it's unlikely that the dollar is completely replaced by another currency. What they're saying is more likely is that the world begins to have what they call a unipolar uh, monetary system where a few currencies play a role rather than, than just the one currency with which is coming from the U.S., the U.S. dollar. Now, if the dollar gradually loses its place atop the uh, world financial pyramid, it would likely mean a few things. One, a, a few things here in America. One, less access to capital. All right, because we're not as money, not, not as much money is going through, you know, U.S. channels. Higher bar- borrowing costs. We'll all feel that. And lower stock stock market values, among other effects. Having the world's uh, world's reserve currency has allowed the U.S. to run large deficits in terms of both international uh, trade and government spending. If foreigners no longer want to hold dollars for savings, it would force significant belt tightening at home. If China and others are successful in de-dollarizing. That's going to have consequences for us here in the U.S. You heard how how many transactions, what percentage of transactions were a part of. If that's taken away, that's a major deal. Now, I've always said that I'm not a foreign policy expert. I'm not pretending to be a foreign policy expert today. okay? I've been watching this. I've been listening to this. I've been reading up on this enough to where I can relay what's going on. But I'm not going to tell you that I. I should be in the place where I'm creating the policy. But I do want to discuss what what some of the dynamics that might be in the minds of those who are creating this policy, who some of whom may be Christians. Number one, while I don't believe that everything the U.S. does is good, um, I would much rather have the U.S. controlling some of these things than China and Russia. For me, that's absolutely clear. Are we the benevolent hegemon that does everything right? No do we generally do things more right than China and Russia? I would say yes, and I would feel comfortable saying yes uh, to that. Sorry some people might disagree but but that's the way I feel so in knowing in knowing that pushing this in the hands of China or Russia could get worse, how do we how do we push back? What do we say to the countries who get foreign aid and benefits from us, but are doing things that could actually hurt our economy? Do we big boy them, sit down in a meeting, say, hey, man, you make one more vote that hurts us or you continue to participate in BRICS and it's going to be a problem. Is that Christian? Is it not Christian? These are tough decisions that policymakers have to make. What does it mean to have the interest of America in mind when you're having these conversations with other countries? What does it mean to also have their flourishing in mind and understand how, in some instances, when it comes to IMF and other things, maybe it hasn't always been so fair uh, in in ways that we've handled it. Maybe they have reason to say, hey, man, y'all can't just control everything and expect us to answer to you and you impose sanctions whenever you want to and we have to uh, abide by them. These are the hard questions that people who create policy have to answer. And I want people to understand that policy is hard, that policy always almost always has unintended consequences, things we didn't see coming. Uh, And it's real. You can't just go out there and say, you know what, just give everybody everything and let China and Russia do whatever they want to do and have at it and think we're going to be in a position where people are safe and things are certain and things are stable. That's not exactly true. So one of the things that we're wrestling with is should America strive to be this hegemon and maintain that, even if it's even maintainable, or should we just become just another country? I think a lot of people answer that question too easily. And I think that's a very tough question to answer. You have some people say, hey, we shouldn't be telling other people what to do ever. Just let it go and let other people, you know, decide for themselves. Well, are they going to be able to decide for themselves or Is a country like China and Russia going to decide for them? Then you have other folks and you heard it from uh, Haley and Pence in the Republican uh, in the Republican debate. Hey, we should be controlling all this stuff. We need to regain, you know, the position of complete, you know, of, of power, not complete power, of power that we had before. Maybe. But if we've abused that power, if we look at some of the wars like Iraq that we entered into, if we look at these forever wars, and the military industrial complex all these things that we have is that good either i'm not here to give you an answer today sometimes i try to provide answers i don't know that this particular policy has one good answer but i do want y'all to be able to think about that in depth all right hope you enjoyed this episode even though we didn't have my man the right reverend christopher butler i hope you learned something from it uh, as always, Ann Camp, there is a cross that neither political conservatism or progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, Ann Camp. Well, I'll let we'll you.